This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Welcome into Bustin' Loose Baseball, episode 66. Got a lot to talk about the MLB draft. Dylan Cruz is headed to D.C. Had an exciting weekend in Seattle. Grant was out there seeing James Wood and Brady House at the Futures game. We got you all covered here on Bustin' Loose Baseball. Episode 66 starts right now. Bustin' Loose Baseball, hosted by Grant Paulson and Toby Altizer, gives you in-depth analytics and interviews on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Now, here's your host, Grant Paulson and Toby Altizer. Toby Altizer here for Bust Loose Baseball alongside Grant Paulson. Grant's out in Seattle, been part of all the all-star festivities, enjoying the time out there. How's it been, Grant? It's been so good. This is something I look forward to every single year. Uh, I always get a little worn down with the voice by the time it's all said and done. And uh, the travel and everything, it's long days, but it's it's really good time. I got out here on Friday night. Uh, Saturday was at the ballpark all day. Uh did a three-hour futures game show on the field and then three-plus hours on the field with uh, the broadcast, sat in the NL dugout. I was shoulder-to-shoulder in the dugout with Ken Griffey Jr. for about 20 minutes, you know, talking to him. as he was He's like an amateur photographer now, taking pictures. So that was pretty cool. Um, and obviously getting to interview a bunch of the, the National League stars in the futures game on our in-game broadcast as a sideline reporter and then run out on the field to, to interview the MVP. I uh, got some dinner out here in Seattle, really good spot on the water on Saturday night. And then on Sunday, it was our draft show, man. We were live. I was with former GMs, Jim Bowden, Jim Duquette, my buddy, Mike Farron, who calls games on ESPN for college ball is our college expert. And uh, we deep dived into, we did the top 39 picks live on air. It's a marathon show. It was about five hours of radio uh, without standing up. You know, it was like being on a flight basically can't go to the bathroom. It was a really, really good time. And then uh, yesterday was over at the ballpark, did a show live from uh, T-Mobile Park, the old Safeco, on media day, and uh, enjoyed the home run derby, which we should talk about as well, because uh, that was incredible. So gearing up now for the All-Star game tonight, it's, it's kind of fun. You know, you, you start with the high school All-American game on Friday when I get in, and then they had the HBCU Classic on Friday night, and then the Futures game and the draft and the derby. And you're kind of like, wait, there's an all-star game tonight, too? And it's like the whole reason you come out here. So it's baseball's done a really, really good job putting all this together in the sense of, like, it's it's no longer just a day or two, right? It's a almost a week of events at a lot of levels to showcase the game, which is incredible. Yeah, it looks like a lot of fun, honestly, seeing all the videos you've sent us and the, watching the Home Run Derby last night, seeing the Futures game, all the stuff out there. 
Makes me want to get out to Seattle. I want to get out and see T-Mobile Park. It looks like a beautiful ballpark. But let's not bury the lead here, Grant. We want to talk about Dylan Cruz coming to D.C. with a second overall pick. So Paul Skeens goes number one overall to the Pittsburgh Pirates. I don't know if it's a huge surprise, but a little bit of one because there was a lot of talk about Wyatt Langford going number one overall. The, the slugger from Florida ended up going number four overall. But there was a lot of talk of him going there. They end up going with Skeens, which I think makes a lot of sense for Pittsburgh. I think that's a really good pick for them. You get a guy that can really transform your pitching staff, a guy that's a future ace, the guy that they really don't ever have the opportunity to sign in free agency. They get him. So that leaves the Nationals the choice of Dylan Cruz and a bunch of others. But I don't know that there was much of a choice there for Mike Rizzo and the, the crew. I think it was Dylan Cruz all along if they took Skeens number one. So they go and take Dylan Cruz. Obviously, a lot to be excited about with Dylan Cruz coming to D.C. Yeah, 100 um, percent. I think they were choosing between the two players from LSU. Right. I mean, it was that simple. If the Pirates took one of them, your job is done. And if they didn't then you choose between the two, and it would have been fascinating to see what they would have done. I, I do think maybe they would have gone Skeens. They're a pitching-friendly organization. Obviously, Rizzo loves starting pitching, and he was also a celebrity. And if ownership gets involved, then you know they sometimes lean toward the more famous player. And if you watched Mike Rizzo make the call to Dylan Cruz, Mark Lerner's sitting right in front of him, kind of knee-to-knee in the draft room. Uh, having said that, I was told that Dylan Cruz was a little higher than him on their draft board for what that's worth. I think he was rated, you know, their number one overall player. It's just a matter at that point of, you know, if it's by hairs, are you going with the, the ace or the, the outfielder and how does it fit into your system? What do you feel best about? But I think this worked out so well for the Nationals. I think Nats fans should be elated. First thing I want to say, because I've seen a lot of this on social media, is all this stuff about, oh, he's a Boris guy and kiss him goodbye. That's so stupid. Like, it's just so nonsensical. Number one, we're, you're talking about seven years from now. Like, that is so much. That, that's a quarter of, that's a fifth of my life so far. You know, like, who cares what happens seven years from now? Now, if, if in seven years he's Soto and Harper and, and he leaves because of the Boris situation, you've won. I mean, you've already won. He's a star. He's been masterful he's led you to the postseason like that's huge that's a w uh but i, I just i've hated that narrative but i, I don't want to bury the lead and, and get too much deeper into that let's talk about the player the player's special a 21 year old bat it's gonna stay in center field for me if you thought he was gonna move to a corner then the difference between he and wyatt langford wasn't huge uh, i don't think he's gonna move to a corner i think he's gonna stay up the middle and play center field he's six foot and 205 he can run he was the leader of an LSU team that won a college world series. This is elite level makeup. I was told a story recently where he went to his college coach, Jay Johnson with Paul Skeens. And they asked Jay Johnson toward the end of the year, you know, what can we do to make sure that this culture sustains after we leave? I mean, how many college kids do that kind of a thing and, and are asking those types of questions, but that's the kind of makeup and character we're talking about. One of the things I liked best about Dylan Cruz is the success he had against the best college arms he faced. He hit two homers last year off Blake Tidwell, who went just outside of the top 50. Uh, he had exit velocities against Paul Skeens in the one game he ever had against Skeens when Skeens was at Air Force last year of 109 and 111.2. 
including a 413-foot home run off, off Paul Skeens. So he handled velocity. Most batted balls over 100 miles an hour in college since 2000. First two years of school, his max EV was 115, and his 90th percentile exit velocity, which is probably more telling, was 108. I know it's a, a metal bat, but that's special. This was the best player in the class. This was the best bat in the nation. This was the Heisman Trophy winner in baseball, the Golden Spikes Award winner, and an SEC Player of the Year for two straight years in the best conference. And, Toby, we've talked a lot about the numbers, but he hit 425. He slashed 426, 567, 713, and he tied for the Division One lead with 71 walks against 46 strikeouts. And the guy he tied was playing in a pretty bad conference against bad competition. So I love Dylan Cruz. It's a long track record of success. As a senior in high school, he would have gone in the first round in a normal draft, pulled his name to go to college. Then he was the national freshman of the year, led the SEC in total bases as a freshman, set the school record with 18 home runs in his first year. As a sophomore, he hit 22 more homers, was the SEC player of the year, as I mentioned. And then this year he was the best player in the country, and they won a college World Series. So I just think the Nats got themselves a really safe, really, really good offensive player who's going to move quickly. It is not unrealistic to say that he'll play in the big leagues by the end of next season. And that's what I like about this pick if you're a Nationals fan. You know, it can be difficult at times when you go through rebuilds, especially in baseball, where you're picking guys, maybe you're taking a high schooler, and you might not see this guy for three, four, maybe even five years plus. That's not going to be the case with Dylan Cruz. And to your point, this guy has a long track record. If you look back at his slash line as a freshman in the SEC, 362, 453, 663. Then he improved on some of those numbers in his sophomore year, 349, 463, 691. Never had an OPS lower than 1,100 in the SEC in three years. So I think that you're looking at a guy that clearly adjusted, obviously broke out this season with a, a 400, 500, 700 slash line, which is incredible. So I think this is a guy that could quickly rise through the ranks, a guy that you could see in the big leagues by next season. And now that he's in the system, now that you have the opportunity to look and say, this is the guy we drafted, you can look at a guy like Cruz there with Wood. We'll see what happens with Hassel, if he can kind of get back to his form. And the thing that I really like about this is I'm assuming that they're not going to move Lane Thomas. I, I Unless they get a, a bat or a, an arm that they really, really like, maybe a top 100 prospect, I just don't think they're going to move him. So now you can look at it, say next season, Maybe by the end of next season, you're looking at an outfield of Lane Thomas and right, Cruz or Wood in center field, the other in left, and you have Hassel still coming up at some point. So maybe that bumps Thomas to a fourth outfielder or Hassel's your fourth outfielder. And then the guy that gets forgotten in all of this is Elijah Green. It almost turns him into a luxury at this point because the crazy part about all of this is Elijah Green might have a higher ceiling than all of these guys. And so now if you can get that guy to turn out to be a stud, that really puts you over the top. So taking a guy like Dylan Cruz kind of allows your system to just revamp itself a little bit. And having Wood come up pretty soon, having Cruz come up pretty soon, I think also is good for the ball club because it allows there to be some excitement. You know, you can you can go see these guys whenever they're in town. I think the the Senators are back in town against the Bay Sox next week. So if you want to go see James Wood and the boys over there, you can do that. But you won't have to wait too, too long to see these guys in the major leagues. And I think that's really important for the Nationals because some of this uh, 
you know, the, the World Series happens, then COVID happens, then they're selling off everyone. And I think it kind of demoralized the fan base a little bit. Well, now you're looking like the up and up could be coming a lot sooner than we expected with the Soto trade and now drafting Dylan Cruz. I think there's going to be a lot of excitement around adding Cruz to this outfield, and rightfully so. I mean, we talked about how crazy good this guy can be, and I think that once he comes up to the big leagues, he's going to stick here for a long time. Yeah, I mean, so a couple of things. I mean, A, their outfield and their system is pretty loaded, as you said. Um, if you look at it, so – James Wood and Dylan Cruz are a cut above. I think they need to be separated because those guys are just really special prospects. And uh, MLB Pipeline and some of the, the publications that, that rank prospects will have to do a lot of re-ranking now after this draft. But I, I promise you Dylan Cruz will be a top 10 prospect in baseball. I'd be really surprised if he isn't. So the Nats will have two guys in the top 10 with Wood and with Dylan Cruz in my estimation. Uh, maybe Wood slots down a pick or two if, if Paul Skeens or someone goes ahead of him. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think that those two guys are different, so I separate them. Having said that, as you said, in the case of the rest of their outfielders and their system, though, in the same way that you can't just bank on Dylan Cruz becoming a superstar or James Wood becoming a beast because until you've proven it as a prospect, you know, it's just kind of potential we don't know that none of these other guys are going to end up being a lot better than we think. Right. So right now the arrow is down on Elijah green and we don't feel as good about him because there's just not a long track record of guys who strike out as much as he is in a ball turning it around and having a great career. Like it's really alarming for me. Uh, and I am really, really worried about him. Having said that, if, if they make a swing adjustment and something clicks, you're right. Like that's a top five pick that has a massive ceiling. I, I believe that um, Dalen Lyle, who I've seen a bunch in Fredericksburg, has a chance to be a really good major league outfielder. I know there are some people in the Nat system that that actually, after the last few months, think that he might end up outpacing Robert Hassel because he might have a little bit more wallop in the swing. Um, Hassel's going to need, I think, to beef up this offseason and to – uh, maybe even make a, a swing tweakers or something mechanically. Uh, but they need him to hit the ball in the air louder and, and hit more home runs. But he's got a chance to still be a good major leaguer. I mean, this is a guy who was viewed as a safe 280-20 home run guy when they acquired him. And I still think they believe, by the way, that he's going to hit 20 home runs a season. But he, he just hasn't gotten there and shown it yet. And the broken handmate might be a reason why. And then you throw some of the other names in there. Jeremy De La Rosa has flashed you know, some legit potential. Like there, there are enough outfielders in this system that you feel like they've created some really good competition, which I like. But going back to Dylan Cruz specifically, before we move on and talk about some of the other things they did in the draft, um, you know, I, I just think it's, it's important to acknowledge how strong the hit tool is here. You know, this was a 70 hit tool. This is one of the very few graded hit tools at 70 for pipeline that they've had over the last five years in the draft. They don't really give that out. Uh, it's probably close to 60 power he could tap into. You know, 20-plus home runs in a good year. He could be upper 20s maybe if it all comes together. Uh, he's a good runner. He's a 60 runner. It's a it's a 55 arm and a 50 fielder. So you're talking about every single tool potentially being above average. A couple of things I, I, I did want to point out. While he did a great job against fastballs, 431 average, 736 slug, um, and, you know, against upper quartile velocity. So if you look at the 95-plus velocity, 
Uh, he hit 430 with a 570 slug. Now that slug is not as good. What that tells you is that's kind of an average, closer to average slug at that point for that sample. It tells you that he's still got a lot of hits, but not as much power against velocity. And if you start to look at ground ball rates and things against velocity, it goes up, which I guess is not necessarily stunning. But what I noticed about him is it was a lot more ground balls this year than you want. It was a 51% ground ball rate, 51%. Um, his average launch angle against 95 plus was 8.7. Uh, first two months of the year for the synergy data that I was able to get my hands on. What that tells me is, you know, you, you want kind of like a 12 to 20 degree launch angle. That's like the, the sweet spot for line drives and, and driving the ball. So it was more ground balls than you're looking for against Velo. Now I'm nitpicking. I'm looking at one of the most beautiful models in the world and trying to find, you know, a, a, a bad earlobe or something. Right. But, but these are the things he's going to have to clean up. And the last thing I'll say is, and the reason I feel so good about Dylan Cruz um, I think this is a great stat I found for our draft coverage on MLB radio. He had 53 plate appearances this year that ended with fastball velocities 95 or plus. Okay. So that means that the final pitch of an at bat, it could be a strike, a uh, strikeout, a walk, a base hit, or a batted ball out, whatever. But 95 plus to end an at bat, 53 plate appearances. Other first-rounders, Chase Davis had five of those in the Pac-12. Uh, Brock Wilkin in the ACC had six of those. So you're, that, that's just a way to quantify the caliber of the competition that he was facing. 53 compared to five or six. And there were guys in the draft that had fewer than that that went in the first round. I mean, the competition you faced in the SEC and specifically that he faced was pretty dynamic. And the mother, the dude hit four 130 and at a 1200 OPS. I mean, the Nats fans should be elated that they just added this bat. And one last point I'll make, and I'm being too long winded, but we've talked a lot about this player development staff. Okay. And, or, or their ability to draft and develop and why guys haven't panned out and what's gone wrong. Last week, we talked about that baseball America piece where they're the worst at turning out basically hitting prospects. You know, Elijah Green was drafted, needed to make a swing adjustment. Guess what? Right now, Elijah Green strikes out too much, needs to make a swing adjustment. Like, you haven't seen that growth yet. This is not a guy that needs a lot of developing necessarily. And I also think that's a really good sign for a team that, if we're just being honest, has struggled at developing hitters. And that's another reason why I really like him. Yeah, and I mean, just to reiterate what that piece was about, was basically saying that Nationals hitters that they've drafted over the last 10 years are the worst, and if you multiply their numbers by three, four, five, sometimes even six, seven times, you're not even catching up to the team that's in front or sometimes even to the team that's ahead of you. So it's it's been really bad, and like you said, I think you get a guy here that doesn't need too, too much development. I think he's going to be a good player pretty much regardless of what the Nationals do. The, the question I have as we wrap up here with Dylan Cruz before we get into the rest of the draft class, does he start in double A? Does he start in high A? Does he start in Fredericksburg? Where do you think he ends up starting out? I think, see, what I would do and what teams do is always different. I would be ultra aggressive. I, I, my guess is uh, a lot of times you have guys play a few games at, at a couple levels right away. 
number one, I think it gives fans a chance to come out and see them and, and helps, you know, also you just, you get them let them get their feet wet without being like overly thrown into the fire or challenged, uh, you know, Fredericksburg, such a beautiful new ballpark <clears throat> and has such a good following and in turnouts. It wouldn't surprise me if he went there for like a week or a few games, you know, then you send him to Wilmington and I think he could spend a week or two there. The answer to the question, your point is like, where will he play the bulk of his action? I think it should be a double A, to be honest with you. I mean, to me, the SEC is on par with like good A action, like A plus maybe. So, you know, you probably would start him just naturally in A plus ball if, if all things are equal for what would be like a tune up, get you used to the organization. Let's go over some things with a little less on the line. And then maybe you bump them up to double A and, and, and kind of, quote, unquote, throw them into the fire and see how it goes. But, like, do I think his first game will be at double A? I think that would – I would do that. I think that would be aggressive and fun, and I think he could handle his own. I don't think he would dominate by any means, but I think he could have some enough success to feel good about himself. But my guess is he plays a few games initially below that, and they just kind of get him started. Um, probably more so in Wilmington than Fredericksburg, but the ballpark and the locale and, and just because of the geography of it, like it would make sense to, to have him in Fredericksburg for a little bit too. So maybe my prediction will be a couple games at, at each of the A-ball affiliates, you know, maybe a few more games in Wilmington and then the bulk of the rest of the season in double-A. But we'll see how quickly they get them signed. If they could do it you know, soon, that changes everything. If they don't do it till the deadline at the last minute, um, then that, that also makes a difference. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. So let's take a look at the rest of the draft class. We'll start with the second and third round picks because I know the Nationals are pretty high on those guys. So Yohandi Morales, the third baseman out of Miami, known for his big-time pop at the plate, hit a couple over the batter's eye while he was at the U. And then the third round pick, Travis Sikora, a right-handed pitcher, six foot six, big kid out of Round Rock High School in Texas. So I think there's a lot to be excited about with both of these guys. You get Yo-Yo Morales, a guy that adds pop to your organization right away. 
somewhat something that's really been lacking this season for the Nationals, something that you can add in there. So now you have him and Brady House over at third base, and you know maybe one of them shifts over to first base in the future. Who knows? But as it stands right now, you have both of those guys at third base hitting for some power. So I think that's going to be good for them. And also, he's got a decent glove over there from what I've read. So if he can stick over at third base, you just have at least a couple of options, depending upon how Brady House continues to develop. And then getting Sakura. This is a guy that was ranked as the number 40 overall prospect, according to MLB Pipeline, and you got him in the third round at pick number 71, a right-handed pitcher coming out of Round Rock High School. I believe from what I saw on Twitter that there's two other Nationals pitchers that are from Round Rock High School. One of those guys is Mason Thompson, so you got a couple guys that are already here that are from that area, but a big, big guy. Six foot six, throws a hundred on the fastball already with a split and a slider. A lot to get excited about with these guys, Grant. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a few things. So we can start with Yoani Morales from Miami. He's huge. Uh, he's six four, two twenty five. Just big league body, giant guy. Frankly, he's to be one of the biggest guys in most big league clubhouses at this point. Um, went fortieth overall, and as you said, it was better than that in terms of all the rankings. He was ranked you know, in the 20 to 25 range, depending on where you looked. I even talked to some people before the draft who thought that was too rich. You know, MLB Pipeline, I think, had him the number 20 player in their class. When we did all of our interviews this year, just to give you an example, um, for MLB Radio, I think our first batch of, of college players we requested interviews with was like seven or eight deep, and he was one of them. Like, we knew this guy was going to be going early enough and had a, a good enough track record that we felt like it was worth it to, to record with him early on. And then lo and behold, he falls out of the, you know, the first round essentially all the way to 40. Uh, but the, the, look, the bloodlines are strong. His dad was a, his name's Andy, uh, played in the Yankees and Red Sox system was on the Cuban national team. Um, if not for the COVID draft, when there was only five rounds in 2020, I think he would have been a much higher regarded player in that draft that the season not shut down and maybe he signs and doesn't go to campus at Miami. Uh, he played a lot as a freshman right away in 2021. He had 11 home runs. Then as his sophomore last year, he broke out hit 18 homers had an OPS over a thousand. Uh, he played for team USA and batted 400 um, in the summer going into this year. And then this year with the Canes at the U 61 games, 240 at-bats, hit about 410, had an 1187 OPS in college with 20 bolts and 70 driven in. Um, there's a lot of strikeouts here, and in this swing, there's going to be a lot of strikeouts. And this is the concern. You know, we just talked about Elijah Green. My pre-draft thought on Yoandi Morales was, I hope he ends up in an organization that does a good job with kind of swing path and swing adjustments and can get him like his uh, idea at the plate is not very good. Like his plate discipline maybe is a little bit better than his approach as we would call it, but he doesn't walk a lot. Like it was 30 walks in 60 games as a feared slugger. That's too low. And it was 55 strikeouts. I mean, he, he walked 41 fewer times as an example than Dylan Cruz. And he's got, probably more power and it's just a bigger, more intimidating, imposing presence. So that gives you an idea of his approach. I think it needs work, uh, but he slugged over 700. He got on base at a 475 clip. He's sneaky athletic. He was seven for 10 running on the base paths. Um, 
he's a below average runner, I would say, a 45 runner on a 2080 scale or 50s average. Um, but the hit tool might be around 50. His best tool by far is the power, as you said, 60 power. And he is grades out pretty well defensively at third base. Even if he ends up in left field, which is probably more likely just because of how big he is at the big league level, like the power plays. And, and my question is, can you cut down on strikeouts and improve the approach? He's a former shortstop. He's got a really good arm. He could absolutely stay at third if that's what you want. Obviously, the Nationals have Brady House, barring something going wrong, who should be their future third baseman. Uh, you worry about that when he's ready and, and when Morales is already in the big leagues or what have you. But uh, he just – he's got – everything's an A swing with him, I would say, Toby. Like, it's power over hit. He's swinging from his shoes, and he's trying to hit bombs. And I have no problem with that. But the, the theme here is – that the Nats basically got three first-round talents with their first-round picks. And I'm not going to tell you that they, they kicked the rest of the draft to the curb. I don't think that was the case. But the Travis Sikora kid that you were talking about that they drafted with their third pick at number 71, who you mentioned was number 40 on Pipeline, this is kind of a first-round starter kid. It's a – you know, if, if he was 18 years old, he's 19. He's one of the oldest players in the draft out of high school. If he was 18 years old, I bet you this kid goes in the first round. Um, and and in a year where there wasn't much high school pitching, in fact, we only had one first round uh, high school pitcher that went in the top 23, I think it was. And that was Noble Meyer to the Marlins at 10 out of Jesuit high out here in the Pacific Northwest. But this Travis Secor is 6'6", 230. Like he's massive. He's built like a major league starter already. Touches 100 miles an hour. He's got a pretty good slider he can spin. Uh, he throws a splitter that's above average, maybe a second-best pitch. It's like when, when you hear throws 100, has a 70 fastball, maybe a 60 split, and a 55 slider, and he's 6'6", 230, there's no reason in the world that guy didn't go in the first round except the, the profile of a high school right-hander who touched 101 is petrifying. You almost bank on Tommy John or, or some type of arm issues if you're a team and, you know, just to be frank, high school right-handers, like they pan out what percent of the time, Toby, maybe a third of them become really good major leaguers. A third of yeah. them never get to the big leagues and a third of them just aren't as good as they're supposed to be. So it's a really scary profile. Um, and that's why he fell in the draft. You know, the high school pitchers almost never go as well as they, they are expected to, but I'm telling you the fact that he's 19 was held against him. And I always think that's so dumb. Because if he just goes to Texas, where he's committed, and he comes out as a draft-eligible sophomore in two years, no one's holding his age against him. Now he's 21, coming out of college, and it's not an issue anymore. But because he's 19 out of high school, everyone's like, oh, we don't like – there's less projection there. So um, it's – I love the pick. It's a very, very high upside pick. It's obviously risky with, with an, a high school arm and with one that throws that hard. It's funny. It's like, what do you like about him? He throws 101. Why did he go as late as he did in the draft? He throws 101. You know, it's <laughs> like that, that you can answer the question with both of those questions. Yeah, and I think the good part about this, though, is if you can get a guy like this in your system, you can kind of control that. You know, if you let this guy go to Texas and they just want to win national championships and they want to compete in their conference, they're going to throw him a, a bunch. You know, we were talking about this with Paul Skeens at LSU. I mean, this guy was throwing 120, 130 pitches 
you know, every fifth day, every sixth day, because that's what they, they, they want to win baseball games. You know, that's their job. They're not, their job's not to prepare you for major league baseball. Their job is to win baseball games at their program. So if he were to go to college, you know, he's going to get used more. Now, if you get a guy like this in your system, you can kind of monitor him, you know, like you can limit the innings, you can work his way up slowly through the system and make sure that you're keeping a close eye on his health and making sure that you can do all that you can to prevent it. Like you said, I mean, when a kid's 19 throwing 101, it, it just screams Tommy John at some point. And so you just want to do as much as you possibly can to prevent that. It, who knows if you can or can't, but we'll see what happens. I'm excited about all these guys. I mean, those top three picks you got to get excited about. Looking at the rest of the draft class, I won't name off all the names for you, but is there anyone that sticks out for you out of the rest of the guys as we record here before they finish day three? So of the day one, day two picks. Yeah, I would say, I mean, they, they drafted another player out of LSU, an infielder a couple rounds down who was on the College World Series team and had some big moments. So I, I just think coming from that winning culture, maybe being with Cruz in the system could be kind of cool and ben, beneficial. Um, one other guy, though, <coughs> is uh, Andrew Pinckney, who they took in the fourth round, 102 overall at Alabama. Uh, pretty interesting. And in, in texting with a couple of folks with the Nats about him, after they drafted him, I think they like him a lot. Um, and they like adjustments and some of the progress he's made in the last year or so. They think he's really figured some things out. But if you look at his career at Alabama, like every single season, he gets a lot better. And I think that they like that too. But what are you looking for? Like when you get outside of the top 100 picks, I think you're looking for athletes or tools or what have you. And I mean, legitimately, like, this is speed and power, man. I mean, he's got 60 speed, maybe 55 power. He had a game against Paul Skeens that put him on the map a little more than he already was, where he went three for three with a home run in April against the best pitcher in the country. Um, I think he has gotten more disciplined, which has helped him. Uh, it's still going to be a question as to whether or not he'll handle uh, off-speed stuff well. Like, he can gear up for fastballs. He's proven that. He struggled with off-speed stuff. But, it like, what are you looking for at that point in the draft? You're looking for a starter kit. And he's 6'3", 215, which is prototypical big league body. He's got a tick above average major league power and above average major league spe speed. Like, you try to figure the rest out. So, we're talking about lottery tickets at that area of the draft. Um you know, you throw them into the system, you know, guys that we talk about all the time in their system as well. We'll see if anything happens, but he had a good week. Like he'll be in that mold probably. But if they could hit a home run on Dylan Cruz, end up with a big leaguer, regular power hitting slugger in Yoandi Morales and get Travis Secor to the show to help them on the pitching staff in any capacity. And then Pinkney becomes just some type of, you know, extra bat at some point, it'll be not only a really good draft, but one of their best drafts that they've had in, in decades. So um, I'm hopeful, you know, we'll see what happens now. They've got their work cut out for them, but I think Nats fans should be very, very happy with what they tried to do. They were really aggressive at the top of the board. And I've told they're very, very confident that they'll get all their guys signed. Yeah. And I think that's what you see a constant theme here. Obviously Dylan Cruz is going to go over slots Travis Sakura is going to go over slot. So you see after, I mean, basically aside from Sakura, they've gone all college players. So they're going to 
try to get these guys signed and they're going to focus primarily on Cruz and Sakura, I think are the, the two that are going to definitely go over slot is Morales probably going to go right around slot. Would you think? Uh, yes, I would think so. You might be able to get him slightly under um, possibly. I mean, he was supposed to have been picked earlier. Uh, so he may still want a little more money. That's possible. But, uh, I mean, where is he going? My, my thought with him is what's his leverage? Where is he going, right? Yeah. He just went through this process after, you know, a pretty solid year, and it, it's not like teams were overly enamored. So, yeah, I, I don't think you'll – that was a 2.4 uh, – excuse me, $2.14 million approximate value on that pick at, at 40. It was, you know, Cruz is going to get around $9 million. Morales is going to get around $2 million. Sakura is going to get a little over one maybe. So that's – know, over 12 million of their pot, and then they'll have to make the rest work. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Any other draft thoughts? Or are we good to move on to the, the Futures game? Yeah, let's talk Futures game. Because I, I got to tell you, I, I don't know if – I guess we haven't done a pod, so I haven't told you. But I flew out here on uh, Friday. All these days have blended together. Yeah, I flew <laughs> out on Friday morning. So the Futures game was Saturday. And I get to baggage claim. And out of my peripheral, I'm, like, going to pick up stuff. And uh, I see this giant human being, and I, like, look over, and it's James Wood and his family. <laughs> and so I, I've become good friends with James Wood's parents since I got out here. I've bumped into them a bunch. What sweet, nice people they are. James Wood is the quietest, like both both in volume and things to say, like person I think I've ever met. And I was talking to his mom and she's like, yeah, sometimes people take that the wrong way and like, you know, assume that he's not being nice or something. He, he is just so quiet. And I watched him in the dugout at the futures game, he's going around high-fiving and dapping people up. And, you know, first one on the top step to, to tell someone good job on a sacrifice fly or whatever, but he, he just doesn't talk that much. Like he is a quiet guy. Um, but yeah, he and Brady house both out here at the futures game for the Nats. Yeah. And both of them had uh, put on a little bit of a show, specifically Brady house. We talk about James Wood all the time. He, he was, he was good out there. He's not to say he wasn't, but the, the talk of the town apparently was Brady house out there taking BP, put on a show in BP also had a single in the game. So tell us about what your experience was with Brady house out there. Yeah. Well, a couple of things. So the, the batting practice rounds kind of what I want to zero in on James Wood probably showed the best opposite field power um, kind of pole to pole power to both sides of the field. Everyone takes BP at these showcases a little bit differently. So you're going to have guys that uh, take their beeps as if it's a game and they'll try to go to right, center, left, what have you. Um, then you have guys that just air it out. 
Brady House maybe more than anybody else did not look to show that he like here's how we do BP before a game. Uh-uh. Jay, Brady House was like, how far can I hit this freaking ball? Can I go to the upper tank over the Edgar side? Can I hit this ball out of the ballpark like Nelson Cruz did a bunch of years ago? And I was watching BP a couple feet away from Jim Bowden, the former GM of the Nationals, who I do a lot of my coverage with out here, right behind the screen. And I mean, he was raving. He's like, this is this is 40 homer power, like what this guy's showing right now. He was just gushing about Brady House's power. Um, and he's like asking me, what are you know about his numbers? How is he hitting for average and, and not destroying the ball? And you know, like because the BP was less approach and more airing it out. Um, but between Wood, who showed the best oppo power to left field, and then House, who just overall just pulling the ball, killing it. Uh, both of them were on a short list of the best displays before the game. In game, Wood didn't do a whole lot. Um, didn't really get a chance to show much in the outfield. He did have a ta- he had a, a five pitch walk, I believe, and then he had a little tapper in the infield that he almost beat out for an infield hit. Showed blazing speed down the line. There was a nice play made in the infield on like a, a glove to glove scoop. Uh, House actually had a hit on the first pitch he saw. And then he made a terrific catch at third base if Nats fans didn't watch the game where he went over to the camera well and kind of went head over heels, like had to catch himself. Luckily, didn't fall into the camera well. He was held up by some of the media down there, but he fell right into the the camera well, uh, making a really nice catch. So he had a, a big play on both sides of the ball and I think helped his cause out here, frankly. Yeah, and I think that's what's so nice to see. We we talk about James Wood all the time, and this is a guy that's a top five prospect in all of baseball. So we know about him as Nationals fans and any casual, or I wouldn't say casual MLB fans, but any fan that's a little more than casual understands who James Wood is at this point. Nationally, people do. Brady House, not as much. And I think that when you look at the Nationals going forward, we just talked about their outfield depth. Their infield depth isn't as good, so they're going to need a guy like Brady House to pan out, and I think that he's going to be a really good third baseman for this team. I think that the big thing for him is just staying healthy. We talked about this on a pod a couple of weeks ago that with Brady House, if he can stay healthy, every time he's stayed healthy, he's been good. You know, he, he was really good to start out, a top 100 prospect, fell out with injuries, and then kind of worked his way back in again when he's been healthy this season and been able to stay on the field. So I think for him, it's just about staying healthy and continuing to develop. And I think you're looking at a guy that can be an everyday third baseman, all-star level third baseman possibly going forward. I really like what he has, and he's going to bring some power to the lineup that the Nationals really lack at this point. So I'm pretty excited about him. Yeah, I mean, this is not news by any means because he's had such a good year. But I was texting with someone with the Nats yesterday, and they're like, Brady House could be a beast. And I think that's kind of the thought that they have right now, You know, not only coming out of the Futures game. I'm not pretending like that changed a whole lot. But this season in general. Remember, last year he got off to a really strong start in Fredericksburg, and then he missed a lot of time with that back injury. But this year now up to almost 200 at-bats. He's, he's got nine homers. He's hitting over 300. He's got an 890 OPS. Now, it's different levels, right? James Wood was A-plus and double-A. Brady House is, is A-minus and A-plus. But uh, James Wood's OPS is 880. House's is 890. You know, Wood does have 14 homers compared to House's nine and 13 steals compared to his eight. But James Wood's hitting 260 for the season, and Brady House is hitting 40 points higher than that at 300. Now, I'm not comparing them as prospects. James Wood, because of the power and the speed, 
and, and, and you know, just being at a higher level and already showing that he can handle double A pitching to an extent, you know, is on a different stratosphere. But my point is just to say, uh, I'm trying to quantify that I think House has had a really, really good year in the minors for the Nats. And look what's happened since he got moved up to Wilmington. I mean, I, we've talked about it so much on the pod, we don't need to go back into it. But that is not a hitter-friendly ballpark. It's actually one of the worst places to hit in the minor leagues. And while all of his games haven't been at home, he's played 14 games at that affiliate where there are some difficult ballparks. And his average has gone up. In, in A ball, he was hitting 297. And in, in A plus, he's hitting 321. He's got about the same on base, and he's slugging 71 points higher. He's got three homers already. And five doubles, so eight extra base hits in his first 55 at-bats and A-plus. He's been killing the ball. So all of that is really, really encouraging. Yeah, so I think that a lot of that's good. You know, if you're a Nationals fan, obviously it's it's good to see your organization represented well out there at the Futures game. Obviously having guys like Wood and House is good out there. And then the All-Star game tonight as we tape on Tuesday. But last night was the Home Run Derby, and... You were there, Grant. It was pretty awesome to watch on TV. You got Adley Rutschman hitting from both sides of the plate, putting on a show left-handed. I didn't realize he had that kind of pop. I, I never realized that Adley had that kind of pop. He hit a bunch lefty, then switches over to right-handed in bonus time and hits all but one of the pitches out. And then you have Julio Rodriguez putting on a show at home with 41 home runs in the first round. Ultimately, it ends up going to Vladdy Jr., but it was a really fun contest to watch. What do you think of it out there in Seattle? I love the Home Run Derby. I have loved it. I, I've been at, I think, every Home Run Derby for the going on almost a decade. Uh, it is – the new way that they do it is the best. Uh, I was talking to one of my guys, and he's like, I missed the 10-out Home Run Derby. It couldn't be more wrong. That, that's insane. <laughs> I, I saw a graphic yesterday. Um, and you know what it was? I looked up because I was trying to see the last Oriole to kind of put on a show in the home run derby. And I remember Trey Mancini having some big swings in a good moment when he came back from cancer. Um, but the guy before that, I was like, okay, I remember Miguel Tejada was in it. Who would it be? Did Nelson Cruz ever do it? And uh, I looked up like Adam Jones won his first round matchup with four home runs or something like that. And like, then, then you see that um, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Was the second Guerrero Vladimir Guerrero to win the home run derby, right? Because his dad won it. So they're the first father-son tandem to win it. And they had a graphic last night that said, like, Vladdy Sr., when he won it, hit, like, 19 or something. And Vladdy Jr. hit, like, 89 or whatever whatever the difference was. Like, it's so great. It, I, don't, I don't know how it plays on TV, you can tell me. But, like, in-house, it's the best. Not waiting for the ball to land. Just rapid fire, pitch it, pitch it, pitch it. Can you imagine coming to a home run derby and like seeing someone hit four and, and the other guy hit three and like they won the round? Like, <laughs> no, that's terrible. Like, how about someone hit 41 Julio Rodriguez last night? Like, that's what you come to. What do you come to the home run derby to see? It's not, you know, taking pitches and flying out to the, to the morning track. It's 41 bombs. So I, I love this thing. Star of the night was Julio, even though he didn't win with 41 at home. But the, the honorable mention was Adley going switch hit, as you said. I mean, I, I was blown away. As you know, I you know love the Nats, pull for the Birds as well, grew up a Birds fan. Like, I was fired up for Adley to be in it. I gave him no chance. My wife's such a homer. We were in a home run pool. She's still a huge Orioles fan, too. And, uh, and I texted her before it. She had an early pick. And I said, do not take Adley, please. <laughs> She's like, I'm taking Adley. And I'm like, 
please don't take Adley. So he's killing the ball. And I texted her. I said, I'm sorry. I said, I would. I was I did not know he had this in him. Now he ended up getting eliminated in the first round anyway. Do you think we should have head to head or just the top four move on? Because I do feel bad when like he should have been in the second yeah. round. Yeah, I think you gotta go top four, then you can head to head it with uh the, the seeds at that point with it. But to your point, I think that the home run derby is really good the way that they do it now. I enjoyed it. I don't quite understand why they automatically got the extra 30 second bonus. I'm not sure why that was added. Usually it was only the bonus time if you got the two home runs over 440 feet. But the only problem is it's not as good as a television product because before when it was the 10 outs, you would just watch the whole flight of the ball. So you'd see it get launched out there and you can't follow it quite as well on TV. But I do enjoy the new format. I enjoy the fact that you're watching Randy Rosarina basically go machine gun trying to hit as many balls out as possible it was ridiculous watching him how quick he was going seeing all the other guys just i mean it was fun watching julio he kind of gets set in his spot and then boom gone there's another one boom there's another one it's like he was just getting set and then fire and god you know every single time same thing luis robert did that in the first round too it was like yeah hit the home run reset gone again gone again uh, it's ridiculous watching these guys and it can't be overstated how exhausting it is. Go out to your backyard if you have a baseball bat and swing it for a minute straight and tell me how exhausted you are. These guys are hitting upper tanks multiple times and just keep going at it for three and four minutes at a time. It was ridiculous to watch. Yeah, it's it's the max A swing. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're not taking a breather. Rosarena, by the way, we noticed, was the best at milking the clock. So, like, when he would take a timeout, at the end of his timeout, he would go over and talk to someone or say hi to a family member. Like, he was really smart about getting a little extra time. So, I'll be curious to see if anyone does that in the future. Uh, real quick, though, I wanted to ask you, Toby, because I've been out here at all these events, and I'm going to the All-Star Game, obviously, tonight. We'll get this post today, SAP for people. Uh, I was watching the Nats from afar and monitoring everything going on. I mean, I waited – Almost 90 games for Joey Manessis to hit home runs, and it didn't happen. And then he explodes. He had two homers <laughs> through whatever it was, like 88 games or something. And then he hits four over three days, which you know is the most baseball awesome thing ever. And then the other thing is, how, how long are we talking about C.J. Abrams? Like, dude, please steal bases. What is going on? Why are you not stealing more bases? And then top of the order, C.J. Abrams. It's like the heavens opened up, man, and he stole five bags in the final handful of games right before the year. That was pretty cool. Yeah, seeing Joey Manessis start hitting the ball out of the ballpark is huge because that changes everything about him. If he can start hitting for power, then that changes a lot of things in the lineup. We'll see if he can continue to sustain it. Hopefully he can. I mean, the dude hit four in three games. Maybe he found something in a swing. I'm not exactly sure. Davey mentioned he was staying his legs a little bit more, so maybe that's it. I'm not sure what exactly it is, but hopefully it isn't. He got hot for a three-game stretch, you went on a break, and then he lost it again. So hopefully that's not the case. But the thing that stood out immediately to me, three games of C.J. Abrams in the leadoff spot. Went six for 12 with the run scored in RBI, walked once, struck out once, and stole three bags. That's a leadoff hitter, baby. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I wanted to see. And I asked Davey about it post game on Saturday night, kind of what he had seen. And he said that he had called CJ into his office and challenged him like, look, man, you should be a leadoff hitter. This is what it entails. This is what you need to do. And here's how you do it. And he's gone out there in one series. I know it's a small sample size, but he's done it. 
And I think CJ's the kind of guy just observing him that I wouldn't say he gets bored. That's, you know, that's wrong. It makes it sound like he doesn't take his job seriously. That's not the case, but he's a very uh, laid back kind of guy. And I think sometimes you have to just push him a little extra hard, you know, hitting down in the eight and nine hole every night. I, I don't, wouldn't say he got bored down there, but just, he, he needed a challenge. You know, he's playing at the major league level now, not to say that he was, you know, being awesome in the eight and nine hole and they needed to move him up, but he needed something extra, I think, just to push him a little bit. And putting him in that leadoff spot and making it so that he's the central figure of the offense. He's getting the game started. He's going to be right in front of Lane Thomas to drive him in. I think that that's something that's really needed for CJ, and I think you saw it in the series that he took the approach a little bit more professionally. He's taking pitches. He's making sure to work at bats. And then when he gets on, he's realizing, I'm a weapon on base. I need to start turning these singles into doubles. And that's my point with CJ. You know, the narrative of him last season was always oh, a soft hitting shortstop. We can find those anywhere. Well, if you're going to be a soft hitting shortstop, and that's who you are, because it's not like his exit velos are much higher this season, then steal bags, please. Turn those singles into doubles. Turn those walks into an extra base hit. Do those sort of things and become a dynamic leadoff hitter, and we can live with that. And I think that you saw that. I think it translated over to the defensive side of the ball. He looked more engaged over there. He's still making incredible plays up the middle. I think it's just about ironing out all these wrinkles. I'm excited if he can continue to do this in the leadoff spot. I think he might have found something here. Yeah, he's played 81 games this season. So it's pretty easy math to see kind of the 162 pace. So you're talking about 14 homers and 28 steals. You know, 15, 30 guys with his speed, if you're playing really good defense, are valuable. Now, 690 OPS, I need that to be league average, you know, which is probably 30 or 40 points higher at this point. Um, but ideally, 750 to 775 would be nice. You look at the slug for C.J. Abrams, it's up. He slugged 324 last year. He's about 400 this year. His OPS has gone from 600 to 690. You know, if he does that again next year and 690 goes to 780, you know, now all of a sudden you got an above average offensive player with his speed and range at shortstop, and hopefully he's cut down on the errors. And now you got something going. Uh, so I, I, I remind people all the time how young he is. Five steals these last four games before the break really encouraged me. The Nats will come out of the break, by the way. They're at the Cardinals for three, at Wrigley against the Cubs for three, and then the Giants and the Rockies come to town as part of one of their longest homestands of the year. I think the Mets follow suit with four games after that. I'm pretty sure it's a 10-game homestand to end July uh, for the Nationals. And it's a C.J. Abrams bobblehead night that Saturday against the Giants. So Ooh. adds right into our conversation there. I, yeah, I think that I think C.J. is just growing. You know, it's something that you this guy's so young. We've talked about this so many times. So it's it's so hard to take and make huge assumptions about him when the kid is just so, so young and he didn't play a lot of minor league baseball. So he's learning at the big league level. You had a conversation with. Ryan Zimmerman before the season when they were doing the Nats gala on Grant and Danny. And he talked about, yeah, you shouldn't really learn at the big league level. And I don't know if he was talking about anybody in particular, but if he was, it's CJ Abrams. He's learning at the big league level. He didn't learn in triple A and double A he's learning with the Washington nationals essentially. So you're just seeing him develop and grow. And, you know, as long as you see bits and pieces here and there, as long as you see little bits and pieces of him, 
growing and developing, I'm okay with what we see out of it. You know, the numbers might not be great at the end of the season, but if the eye test is showing you that this guy's growing, then I'm totally fine with it. And right now what we're seeing him in the leadoff spot, I think he's showing the, that he's got it. He's just got to figure out exactly how to do it at the big league level. Yeah, I'm fired up. Should be good to watch him in the second half. Any final comments, Grant, or enjoy the all-star game tonight. Go National League over the American League, as always. Any final comments? Just that I wanted to tell people, I mean, Josiah Gray is so happy to be here. I saw him yesterday during uh, batting practice for the all-stars, and he was just walking around, big smile on his face. I went up to him. I mean, he was so pleasant, but he was just saying, he, he literally said to me, he goes, this is a bleeping dream come true, man. He was like looking around the ballpark. So it's really cool to see a big leaguer really take it in the way that he has. Yeah, absolutely. It's awesome to see and awesome to have him represent the Nationals. We've talked about this plenty, so I won't rehash it. But it's pretty cool to see JoJo out there in Seattle. So that's going to do it for Episode 66 here of Bustin' Loose Baseball. Make sure you rate, subscribe, like the podcast, leave us comments. We'll make sure to read those on the upcoming podcast. But for Grant Paulson, I'm Toby Altizer. That's going to do it for Bustin' Loose Baseball, Episode 66. Thanks for listening.